We're in our Advent series called Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, taken right out of the title of that hymn we earlier sung, written by Charles Wesley. And the idea is, throughout Advent, we are recreating this sense of ancient Israel's anticipation of the first coming, or Advent, of the Messiah, this longing, this looking ahead. And we're getting closer to Bethlehem week by week. We're gaining, I hope, an increasing sense of wonder at the significance and impact of the baby born in a manger to Mary and Joseph as we look back to these long ago earlier chapters of the most important story ever told, still being told throughout real history of God's plan of salvation, hinted at, promised, unfolded. So we're continuing this morning what I have called biblical story time, but don't get the wrong sense that this is a set of fables. This is um, fiction. No, this is the truest of all stories that makes all the difference in the world and for eternity. If you haven't been with us these past two Sundays, I I would always encourage you to catch up on a series uh, through graceredeemer.com or through the GRC app. You can sample or listen to um, any of those messages, but my prayer has been and continues to be that as we tell the truest of all stories, you would grow in your appreciation for the unity of this tapestry of God's story told from beginning, Genesis to end, Revelation, when Jesus advents again in glory. Our Old Testament tour started in Genesis chapter 49. The patriarch Jacob, grandson of Abraham, pronounced a unique blessing on son number four named Judah, that through his descendants, the true king, the Messiah, would come. Last week, we jumped to the book of Ruth, which ends in a genealogy, which sounds very anticlimactic and boring, except that it's not, because uh, to borrow the words of the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, the birth of a child is strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Strength for the day. The the people of Bethlehem say to Naomi, she has a son because her predicament that had been hopeless as a widow with her uh, her husband and both sons having died and her daughter-in-law, the other widow, their predicament is suddenly transformed when this poor foreign widow, an unlikely marriage, is paired with this well-to-do older single Israelite guy and their union produces a little boy named Obed, who, oh, just so happens to become the grandfather of another boy named David. Ruth, we said, is set during the period of the judges. It's a period of spiritual and national dysfunction and turmoil. And Israel realizes... They need what everyone else around them has. All these nations have a king. We don't have a king. That's our problem. They, they think that wrongly, but God answers their cry and raises up the prophet Samuel who anoints Saul, the first king of Israel. But Saul very quickly turns unfaithful and disobedient and loses the kingship to a shepherd boy. The runt of the litter, the eighth of eight boys, the son of Jesse, named David. 
And after years of battle, the land is finally at peace, and now King David has a noble desire to build a temple for the Lord, but God's no answer to him is not even the most surprising thing. If you're able, would you stand for this reading? Listen carefully. These are God's words. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies." The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, you are a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. The making of a promise is surprising because neither David nor any of us deserve such blessing. But your promise-keeping continues to surprise us based on your integrity, your word, your truth, We prove that we deserve that promise even less, and yet you promise it anyway. You provide it generously, abundantly. So lead us to worship you as we see your plan unfold through David's life. We pray in the name of Jesus, the Son of David. Amen. Please be seated. We start with house construction. And it's because the the Hebrew word, very simple word for house, shows up eight times in the 16 verses that I read. 
half of the verses. And that word house has three different emphases, and so I'll hyphenate words to try to illustrate what's going on here. In verse 1, David is sitting in his house palace, all comfortable, in the lap of luxury, and he has this noble thought. He realizes that the Lord God still doesn't have a proper house temple because the ark, this symbol of God's dwelling among his people, is still sitting in a tent called the tabernacle. That was part of God's design. It was very fitting as Israel traveled through the wilderness for 40 years and had to set up camp and unfold and set up the entire tabernacle structure for mobile church purposes and then pack it up again when God said, let's go to the next place. David has this sense that we're no longer wandering and Jerusalem is a fortified city. This is not right. But God's answer turns David's intention upside down. In a nutshell, Steve got at this already in his setup to the prayer. The Lord says, David, you want to build me a house temple? No. I will build you a house dynasty, a line of kings, your descendants that will never fail to rule from the throne. This message is what's called the Davidic or royal covenant. It is an amazing promise by God to a mere human man like David. It is pure grace as the greater serves the interest of the lesser. The greater, the creator king himself, promises a mere man, a mortal, this chosen shepherd king that his descendants will always sit on the throne. It's every king's fantasy of a dynasty that the line of kings from him will extend into eternity. And that grace is highlighted even more powerfully when we realize that this house constructed by God for David soon after catches on fire. That's where we go secondly, house on fire. 2 Samuel 7 has to be the highlight of not only David's kingly career, but of his entire life of faith overabundant grace, God speaking to him, though he doesn't deserve this. And we might naively think, and they lived happily ever after, dot, dot, dot. But we only get three more chapters of good news, of positive developments before, well, David's house catches on fire. And his sin is undoubtedly the spark that sets it all off. He's in his palace, enjoying the good life, and from the roof, visibility is excellent, a little too excellent, because he catches sight of the beautiful Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop and invites her over and sleeps with her and gets her pregnant and tries to cover it up, except that doesn't go very well, and so he has her husband Uriah on the front lines of battle set up to be killed. And if we're keeping score, there's coveting, there's adultery, there's lying, there's murder, four out of the Ten Commandments violated, and we would say that any time you violate one of the Ten Commandments, they're rooted in a violation of Numbers 1 and 2, which is 
You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not um, make an idol, a, a substitute, make someone or something so all-important in your life that you must have it. We could easily add that David stole a woman away from her own husband. If you're keeping score, seven out of ten, all happening in one of the ugliest chapters of the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Well, Nathan the prophet, who's a trusted advisor of King David, tells a story of a rich man who has everything. In contrast with a poor man who has one precious possession, a little ewe lamb. But when a traveler comes to the town, the rich man, instead of drawing from all of his flocks and herds, he takes this precious ewe lamb from the poor man and uses that to set up a banquet for the traveler. And David is listening and gets caught by this story, hook, line, and sinker, burns with anger and says, that man must die. And Nathan, uh, the prophet Nathan boldly says to his king, you are the man. That's exactly what you have done by taking Bathsheba away from Uriah, by stealing her, by coveting and acting on that lustful desire. Well, David quickly realizes it. He confesses freely, 2 Samuel 12, I have sinned against the Lord. And the grief that he experiences over his sin would lead him to write one of the most powerful psalms in the entire Psalter, Psalm 51, a penitential psalm. And the superscript, make sure, which is part of the inspired writing of Scripture, make sure we, will, we won't lack the context for understanding what Psalm 51 is about when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. But in the very same verse as his confession, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, Nathan the prophet immediately responds, same verse of the Bible, the Lord has taken away your sin. And we should respond and say, wait, what? David just confessed and Nathan's pronouncing forgiveness. Is it that easy? Is it that quick? And the answer is yes and no. The yes part is that in humble admission of sin and a casting of oneself upon the mercy of God and, and a continued deep abiding faith in the heart of God who is, yes, just, but also merciful and forgiving, well, that's the same prescription that we would share today if you realize the depth of your own sin and your desperate need of salvation. Cast yourself upon the mercy of God. And yes, he is just, but he also offers this means of forgiveness He offers this plan of salvation through the ultimate son of David. There's no earning of salvation. You can't do enough good to outweigh the bad because sin fundamentally is rebellion against the king. It's treason. And it's a distrust of the father's heart. You don't have my best in mind. I will go a different way. Sin properly deserves judgment. But David here submits himself to this God who is holy and just, but is somehow also merciful and forgiving. Humble, dependent faith in the means means God provides for salvation 
accesses forgiveness. Is it that simple? We would say in light of the gospel, yes. It's costly, but it's that simple. Faith in the means God provides. But there's also an appropriate no answer to this question. Is it that easy that sin has no consequences? The answer in another sense is no, and the rest of David's life illustrates the consequences of sin. This is important as a principle first. Forgiveness of sin does not eliminate the reality of sin's natural consequences. If you forgive someone, that does not mean that no consequences would appropriately come upon them. And so let's say your family owns a store and an armed robber comes in and terrorizes you and takes everything in the store. As a follower of Christ, you you would be called to cultivate a heart of forgiveness towards this armed robber, but you'd also appropriately desire and pursue and participate with the means of justice, catching the guy, putting him behind bars, and seeing that he serves an appropriate sentence as a deterrent, and as a protection for other people's businesses. Forgiveness and sin's consequences are not mutually exclusive. You might forgive the coach of the youth football team who swung at your kid with a helmet on and knocked him down twice. You might cultivate forgiveness, this just happened last week, while maintaining that it's appropriate that sin's natural consequences, this guy's never going to coach again, and charges are being pressed of assault are appropriate. Forgiveness does not preclude the reality of sin's consequences coming upon a person. And so, for David, sin has its natural consequences in the family dysfunction that his sin kicks off, this fire that his sin sparks. The son he conceives with Bathsheba will die within a week of birth. Later on, as his family grows and they grow to adulthood, his son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. Her full brother Absalom kills Amnon out of revenge to protect the honor of his sister. And Absalom's dysfunction only grows from there, snowballs into an all-out mutiny against his father's kingship. He wants to be king. Later on, there's a rebellion led by a guy named Sheba who leads the northern tribes to separate from David's kingdom. And before David's rule ends in his old age, his arrogance, we don't have time to get into the details, leads to God's judgment upon the nation and 70,000 people die of the plague, I believe within three days. Does sin have ugly and destructive consequences? You better believe it does. That's why a more noble, fully faithful son of David still had to come to rule and to reign without end. That's where we go lastly, son of David. God's promise to David here is future-oriented. And in particular, verses 12, and 12, 13, and 14 are talking about David's successor, his son Solomon. God says, He, Solomon, is the one who will build a house for my name, the house temple. 
But even the great King Solomon, whose wisdom was unparalleled, whose wealth was amazing, who, who, whose kingdom borders were, were um, un, un, unmatched, even the great King Solomon can't fulfill what verses 13 and 16 both say, that his kingdom will last forever. Not even King Solomon can ensure that his descendants will always succeed for decade after decade and then for century after century in fending off enemies and competitors for power and rule. It's not possible unless a different kind of king were to come, one who was not merely a man in his descendancy from the line of David. These are, the very, these are the very first words of the New Testament. When we turn to Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew, the gospel writer, from the very first moment, wants his Jewish audience, largely Jewish audience, to understand that the person, the, the one about whom he's, 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 he's to present uh, 28 chapters is the one who fulfilled 2 Samuel chapter 7, the ultimate son of David. When the angel Gabriel visits Mary, he says this, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God, Luke chapter 1. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. He has come. The king to fulfill the line of kings. What makes him different? unlike any other son of David. Well, this Jesus is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and therefore he is fully God, fully divine. And the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and therefore Jesus is fully human, like any of us is. This unique, once-for-all, final son of David is the one whose reign on the throne will never end. On Christmas Eve, the scripture reading from Luke chapter 2 will describe the command of Caesar Augustus, emperor, decreeing that a census of the entire Roman world should be taken and everyone needs to go to their hometown to register and Joseph and Mary travel with mama very pregnant, riding on a donkey, we all know, to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. Later on, well after Jesus' life and ministry, as the message of Christ is spreading throughout the entire Roman Empire, the Apostle Paul points to Jesus' resurrection as evidence that God's promise to David has been fulfilled. This is how the line of kings from David will never end. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 32. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay, as God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. From beginning to end, 
The truest of all stories, Genesis to Revelation, is unfolding with tremendous unity, weaving together this single tapestry of God's intent, His promise to save a people for Himself. This explains how we can sing in the same service on the third Sunday of Advent, both go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born and behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Behold the Lamb of God who died and rose again. But this truest of all sons of David isn't just a king. He is the ultimate and final prophet. Prophets speak forth truth. Not only did Jesus speak forth perfect truth, he is ultimate truth. And here's my question. Question for each of his roles, prophet, priest, and king. For prophet, truth tell, do you believe that the Bible is the very word of God and the Bible is all about Jesus? And do you then notice and reject everything false about life, about faith, about death, about eternity, about our bodies, about our identities, about our sexuality, about our relationships? Because this is truth. And the greatest of all prophets embodied it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He is ultimate prophet. And Jesus is the ultimate and final high priest who has come to administer sacrifice in a most unique way because He is both priest and sacrifice. He is Messiah and He is Lamb of God the final and perfect one who is sufficient to be the substitute for all who place their faith in him. Do you humbly and deeply see the reality of your sin and your desperate need of rescue because it offends a holy God? And either you pay the price for your sin or you trust that only Jesus' perfect sacrifice administered because he is the great high priest, is sufficient. And yes, Jesus is the final and truest son of David, the king whose dominion will never end, which means that this child laid in a manger is also the one who sits on the throne of heaven and rules over all and therefore as king is worthy of all obedience now and forever, and he will display his kingly, majestic power to all the world when he advents again, when he comes on the last day. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, is our prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, come. This world is broken. Complete the work you have started by returning, by adventing again, ending history, making new all things. Until then, Lord, cause the message of life to go forth to humanity. Cause your light to shine into darkness. And yes, expose, but also lead the way. And give us the privilege of being your ambassadors. We pray that you, King, would receive all glory. Amen. Amen. Would you stand?